welcome to Off the Record, episode 2.12. After some difficulty getting some new, fresh interviews that I was proud of, I'm back with one that I'm extremely proud of. And what I did is I turned to the smartest person I know, my mentor, Alan Douches. If you're not familiar with Alan's work, Alan is one of the most credited engineers in the history of music. He has mastered probably the majority of your record collection if you listen to this podcast. You've probably seen his name on things, but he is most known for his work with everybody from Converge to Brand New to Sufjan Stevens and Animal Collective, onto the latest Chelsea Wolf record, Every Time I Die, Mastodon, Dillinger Escape Plan, the majority of the Jade Tree Records catalog, all sorts of records that you're proud of. He's mastered most of my records as well. He's who I turn to to give me advice on the records I make, and Alan has always been one of the most smartest and insightful human beings I've ever known. Not to mention his kind, kind family who were so good to me and really helped me when I got my first real studio job with them back in the late 90s. Um, I think in this episode, Alan imparts a lot of amazing information for musicians to get a fresh perspective. I think you'll hear a lot of things you've never heard discussed before. As well, this is only a portion of what Alan and I discussed. The rest of this is going to air in a new podcast I will have soon that is launching with a new company that I co-founded called Noise Creators. This is also what I was talking about on the Joey Sturgis episode that will be airing the full interview as well. If you now go to SoundCloud and search Noise Creators, you can subscribe there. If you're listening to this after Friday, if you search the iTunes store and go to that store and search Noise Creators, you can also subscribe to that. This new podcast will be discussing production and helping you get to know the producers behind your favorite records and what their techniques are to make great records with your favorite bands and I think it's going to be a really cool thing and that of course is launching behind my new company that I started with my dear friend Johnny Minardi called Noise Creators which is a place for musicians to get to know producers better and then help find the right fit for their record to make great music with. We should be up any day now, and uh, I'm really excited about it. So if you enjoy this conversation, be sure to subscribe to that podcast to get more of this, because I promise you, if you like this part, there's even more great stuff to come in the rest of this podcast, and I have over a dozen episodes taped of that podcast with really, really awesome producers aside from these two guys. So without further ado... Uh, here's Alan Douches, and go subscribe to Noise Creators. You have a teenage daughter. Yeah, that's tough. Who's going into the music business. Yeah, she's actually in the music business. She's in the entertainment business. She's in the entertainment business. She's trying to go into the music business. You've seen every horrible aspect of it. How do you live with yourself? Yeah. Uh, well, I live with myself with it because I've had, you know, now 30 years, you know, since I got out of high school, 30 amazing years, you know, and I still have never had a job in a sense. Mm-hmm. So so how can I possibly try to deter her from having uh, an amazing life? You know, that's really what it comes down to. 
you know. And, you know, obviously I try. So you say Amazing Life because you've had one, but so many people you've seen have not had such an amazing life in music. Yeah, but, but most people aren't trying hard enough. That's true. They're, they think they are. But they're not hanging in to the, you know, are they, you know, are they splitting out of the studio early? You know, are they putting in, you know, um, the extra extra moments? I know somebody just recently, I think we know in common, um, you know, did a test mix on a pretty big record. And, uh, and they lost it. And let's just say a really big one got it. You know, and now, and when I just spoke to him, I said, well, in hindsight, I said, you know, had you know, did you know you were up against that person? And he said, no. I said, well, would you have mixed differently if you knew you were? And he said, yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. Because I think I'm, I'm victim of that, too, is that when I do a test, I mean, when I do a test mix, I also just do the only thing I know I know how to do, which is I have to make it sound good to me. Right. right. And... That's the only way I make good music. Right. I think it's the only way anybody makes good music, but there is something that, yeah, you might have stayed for another hour to ABing some other approaches right. if you do well, that the big guy is going to go. It's, it's, and, you know, and, and it's not even just ABing, but even you know, beholding to your own sense of perfection mm-hmm. or what your perfection is. Yeah, but know? also learning when. You know, I'm a per- perfect example. Is like I'm a uh, hour eight's usually pretty bad for me. Hour eights, I hate myself. This sounds kind of good. I hate myself. This kind of is kind of good. Alternating every fifteen minutes. Right, right. Yeah. And but if I stop at hour seven, I'm usually pretty psyched, and I haven't nitpicked it to death. Huh. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess I can go about twelve. You can go twelve hours mixing. Yeah. Well, I don't know about mixing, but you know, working. Okay, working. But you're doing different projects in twelve. You don't ever master a record for twelve hours these days. No, and and you know it's. I've kinda, seen you do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, um, I see I see some things online with people, you know, whatever, you know, you know, you know, somebody and see they got a video and, you know, they went in to do mastering at whatever they what got to the studio at six o'clock at night or something, and then it's like you know seven or eight o'clock in the morning and they're coming out and they're like yeah man we got our record, fourteen hours and I'm like fourteen hours, dude, <laughs> like like who can hear you after that amount of time. I mean, no. yeah, I'm not mastering for 12 hours, but I'm, I'm on my game doing a variety of things, you know, mm-hmm. whatever they may be, you know, um, could be some forensic work, could be some denoising work, could be just file management, could be whatever. Mm-hmm. But I'm, you know, but I'm just thrilled and thankful to still to this day to be, you know, doing what I love to do, you know. So what do you have to impart of when you know it's right then? Like anything creatively, how do, how do you, what's your barometer for that? Well, I was fortunate enough that when I got started, you know, the first six months of my career, well, when I first had my first A-Track studio, I remember trying to think, how do you get those sounds, you know, and how, mm. you know, I'd be either recording my own material or somebody else's material and, you know, and you record it and while you're doing it, you're thinking you're doing it and then you mix it down and, you know, it just doesn't sound like whatever, you know, whatever you were trying to make it sound like at the time. And then when I got my first job at the studio and I was fortunate enough to work with, you know, with uh, Jack Douglas mm. and I'm, you know, I'm stuck in the studio with him for six months. Your ears start to 
get trained to know what you're listening to. And then it was, you know, it wasn't just the six months. It was almost two years on and off at different projects. And you're constantly hearing state-of-the-art sound, you know, mm-hmm. Neve console, Studer tape machines, you know, vintage mics, you know, you know, Grammy award-winning producer, you know, you know, Aerosmith, you know, Grandmaster Flash, you know, artists that are, are doing something really interesting. And you, you just kind of get embedded into your head this is what it's supposed to sound like in the control room, mm-hmm. not on vinyl at home, mm-hmm. you know, but you're actually hearing in that control room. And I think a lot of people are missing that to be ingrained in their head as to that's what the inspiration is. Well, and so, you, I mean, I'll put on a piece of, ha- I'll put on an old half inch mix. Like mm-hmm. if I'm, you know, I, you know, you hear stories about people like they'll play a song or something to get inspired or something, but maybe they're playing a CD or something, you know, I'll put on a, a half inch tape of just a, a mix coming off of that Neve console and just listen to that Sonic in analog, not, you know, patching it into a digital, you know, mixer or something, but actually listening to a pure analog source like that. And that's inspirational. And that resets your bearings. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you think though that there's a thing too that I think one of the law starts and I've been, I think about this a lot with musicians lately is that like, musician will turn to you and they'll say um i want this to be heavier or something and then they're like turn up the compression and so many people think that this is a way you get to the means the end and then you learn when you hear a record apart and you do it enough times you actually learn that no this is the way to do it but i think a lot of musicians close themselves off because they think they assume this is how you get to an end product because they've read how do you deal with that in mastering specifically? Because there's no blacker art, and yet people will say, I, I think I've you know worked with you a, a, enough over the years, but this time when somebody says, that's too compressed, you're like, ah, the compressor's not on. Right, yeah. Yeah, but I think it's also, you know, you have to be able to read what they're, he- what they're saying. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we've all had those stories where somebody says, you know, it just doesn't have enough balls, and, you know, you go and you add all the bass you want, and then the guy's just looking at you like, no, no, balls, balls, mm-hmm. you know, and then you, then you ask him, well, what are you talking about? And, you, and then you accidentally you kick on 6dB at 2K, and he goes, yeah, there, mm-hmm. you know. It's like, well, the guy wasn't really describing it right. Yeah. So I think most of that comes from understanding, you know, normally the musician's not wrong. I mean, if he's psychotic, you got another yeah. problem. But if he's if he's truly just looking to try to make what he's hearing in his head come through the speakers, you've got to be able to decipher his uh, descriptions. Well, I think it's also, if they're talking about an emotion, it's a lot more helpful that they want. Like, yeah. They want more yeah. balls. That's an emotion. Yeah. Might be too late for the mastering for that. Yeah. But, like, saying an emotion, I think sometimes that's the problem, is that a musician tries to delve into the technical world, and you're like, well, technically... Technically, the compressor's not on, or technically, um, <laughs> you didn't put any bass in your guitar sound, so yeah, me trying to yeah. give you some with EQ is just me turning up air that doesn't exist. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, there's there's part of that um, that uh, if, if you start off from a square one and you define the roles that, like, listen, you know, I'm here to help you. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, just, you know, let's, if you're talking about something, what is it you're talking about? You know, rat, because you're right, because they often, from a technical standpoint, they're always, they're 
often they're wrong. They don't really know yeah. what know what they're talking about. So yeah, they want it, you know, to feel heavier, and so they try compression, and they know that no, that's the wrong thing, guys. You know, yeah, let's let's back that off. So distorted guitar up. amp, there's already it's already compressed to death. Yeah, yeah, I, it's yeah. I mean, it's I think that's part of the challenge of it though too. Is like, say, how do you deal with it? It's like, you know what? Part of the uniqueness of what we do is that every day can be different. You know, and you know, and you're constantly trying to figure out okay is you know is this what they want is this what they're after you know that is one of the infinite variables i you know it's funny like i actually now when i um when i start a record with a band and i accept it and we exchange a deposit the first thing i do is i send them a preparation sheet and the first thing it says i'm your friend there's never going to be a point i'm going to undermine you i'm trying to get what you want but sometimes i'm going to need you to talk to me a certain way so that i can help you get what you want yeah Please send me a list of your four favorite guitar sounds, your four favorite drum sounds, your four bass. Yeah. So I could just even understand which language bearing we're going to be dealing with yeah. here. Well, I mean, listening to the client is just as important as listening to, you know, the music, to, to the tones, and listening to what they're saying, mm -hmm. trying to get to the bottom of their feeling. I mean, I guess to a certain degree, as you get further in your career and you're working with better artists, than the BS that they're trying to throw your way because they don't know what they're talking about. They're not, they don't have, you know, nobody's trying to impress each other anymore. It's kind of like, okay, listen, we want to, we want this to sound great. We have a job to do. How are we going to get there? You know, that, that brings me, you know, one of the bits of advice that you gave me that has always been um, one of those ones that uh, your other famous, famous saying, uh, what are you pretending not to know? Yeah, that's my favorite. Why, why, why do you explain that But before I go down this rabbit hole? Um, well, that, you know, it's just that I think we all we all know the answers. Mm -hmm. Or we, we all know the process to get the answer. But we pretend like we don't. It's, mm -hmm. you know, and we, we think that there's a better way. You know, we think that, oh, there must be a plug-in. Or we just keep staring at it and go, maybe I'll yeah. pick that up later, yep. but I'm going to keep letting that sit over in the yeah. quarter. And people just, don't, they, they kind of think like, well, I, I surely I don't know what the answer to this is, so i got to try something else, or i got to ask somebody, when in fact mm -hmm. they know the answer. It's in, you know, yeah. And when you follow that, your own you know, internal guidance system, often you're right for your long, you know, your long result anyway. You know, I, I like think. that. Yeah, I mean, you know. I mean, that was the advice I got from uh, Russ Teitelman. He was just saying, you know, he said, just always trust your feelings because if you're going to become successful and you were guessing or copying... Can you tell them uh, who Russ Teitelman was again? Um, he was he was a producer. I guess he did Steve Winwood's Back in the High Life. He got Grammy Award for that. Yeah. Vice president at Warner Brothers for a while, I think, too. Um, you know, we were talking about, you know, advice for technical people but i think it's a great advice for an artist as well which is just trust your feelings because mm -hmm. if you're copying another sound if you're copying whatever somebody else is doing um you, you know you can get to become more successful but when once you get to a certain level you're going to need to be the person coming up with your own sounds and if you're copying or guessing you're not going to be able to get there you're not going to be able to stay there yeah. so all if you follow your own instincts and you get there, you'll always know what to do. Just keep following your instincts. It, it, it's funny. It's the thing I always say about, um, you know how you get like the musician who's so obsessed with the copyright on their song? Right. Like, I don't even want to bring it to mastering yet. Because <laughs> i got to get it copyrighted before you hear it. Because somebody's going to steal my song I half-assed and spent three hours yeah, writing. Because yeah. <laughs> it's so genius. But it's like that, that thing of like, I don't care who steals it. Like people steal things from me all the time and claim it's them. I see my parts of my book rewritten as articles where right, like, right. I'm like, if I ran this into a plagiarism comparer, 
I could embarrass this person. Right. I don't care because I could think of it the next day. I could do something better. I'm going to. And yeah, plagiarism. It's kind of a. It's kind of you feel feel fortunate sometimes when yeah, you, when it's, you it's, are. It's it's. But I think that that's the thing is if you know you have it and you know you come from the right places, you're gonna do it. But uh, the thing I was gonna get to is you gave me great advice, which was uh. I kept asking about gear and what I should do and what I should buy. Next, and you told me just work with better bands. Oh yeah. And it was funny, I think, because at the time, I was working with some decent bands, um, but it was true. It's like, you know, being around great musicians and being around other people. Like, um, I just learned Brian Eno has a great thing. He calls this, he calls it a genius, like senior and genius, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. if you're in a scene and you're in a place with other smart people, it's just going to keep elevating you. And that's what he's tried to do all of his life is just surround himself with as many great and talented people so he keeps learning their best traits yeah 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 finding better bands you know it's kind of like that's because ultimately that's what will advance your career yeah it's not having the better microphone or a more expensive microphone or more mic pre's or whatever ultimately what launches your career up the ladder are better bands yeah yeah oh it was was funny it was like that and you know i went out there and had to go to local shows and sit through terrible bands and I ended up making some of the best friends of my life who I go to their weddings now yeah, when I d- yeah. from, from doing that and I made great records with them but I also had to sit there and say like I'm gonna eat shit and I'm gonna be beholden to you I'm gonna come to a place where I'm gonna have to let you boss me around even a little bit and I'm gonna have to do whatever the hell you want I'm not gonna really even I'm gonna produce but at the end of the day I'm not gonna really be able to do it with a heavy hand because I'm coming to you and I'm going to not make much money, but man, it got me so many other bands when I killed it so fast. But that's getting back to that. You really gotta, you know, go into this career knowing you're going to put absolutely a hundred percent into it. And, you know, if you're looking to make money first up front, then you're, you're not putting the art first, you know, and when you do work with a great band, you find out that, like, wow, yeah, I didn't need that microphone, you know, or something. You know, it's just like, wow, yeah, look at that, you know, just that rough mix everybody's blown away with. And, yet you know, I spent 40 hours on that mix, and nobody loves it because the band sucks. It has nothing to do with your mix. Nobody's listening to the mix. They're listening to the song, you know, or the or the performance. So, so you just touched on something I wanted to talk to you about. So, like, there's this thing... The myth of, like, the rough mix making the album. That used to happen, I think, a lot more ten years ago. Now, you're the guy who sees the final mixes of so many of these classic huge records. Now, do you ever see the rough mix ever really become the final mix anymore? Because I feel like that's, like, something that's almost died in this era. I think it... Well, no, I, I get it a lot still. But really? I don't get it for the whole album. I get it for, like, you know, okay, so, you know, they hired so-and-so to mix the album. And it's 12 songs, whatever. And, you know, and so you get the 12 mixes, but then they go, you know what, now that we're hearing this, you know, we have a couple of roughs that we did on these two songs, you know, I don't know, maybe we're going to use them for bonus. And, you know, and you do the proper mastering on them and suddenly, hell, they're better than the other mixes. Huh. You know, yeah. I, I, so I you mean, still see that occasionally. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because I, yeah. I felt like that, that's not that's even occasional. Kind of that's not even occasional. That's often. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. So now... Is though that not that's probably I imagine outside though the heavier music genres where production yeah. seems to be it. 
Yeah, yeah. So no, that's more on the indie rock thing or, you know, alternative stuff, you know. And, you know, and somebody will say, yeah, like, okay, it's noisier or whatever. And there's, yeah. you know, bleed off this or whatever. But it's just it's just got more vibe. It's just got more feeling. I mean, it's not a it's not like a, you know, somebody put the mix together in five seconds. But it was a good. Sure, rush sure. Yeah. They, the, the, the band was leaving for tour for two weeks. Let's get something nice for yeah. you to listen to. Yeah. Take some notes on. And or the guy that tracked it decided he was going to do some mixes to send to the mixing guy. So he knows what the band yeah. was thinking of or something like that, you know. And then, the, the you know, the, the mixer. You know, it does a great mix, polishes it up, sounds just mm-hmm. like the other songs or whatever, but it didn't need those, you know, or something. Yeah. You know, when we have poisoned forums that that waste time debating tons of things, like, you know, do you have any ideas of what musicians and younger musicians can do to get some of that knowledge? Wow. Yeah. I mean, like, I think that there is something, like, you know, like, one of the things that helped me was, like, having a relationship where you would tell me when I'm doing stupid things with my mixes. Yeah, you know what, that, I mean, th- that's true. Like when, I, when I thought I brought my bassiest mix in one time, and I was like, man, he's going to fucking kill me. This mix is so bassy. You're like, this is the thinnest thing you do. What the fuck happened here? <laughs> <laughs> and I realized, like, okay, I'm not right. monitoring right, and I'm not A-being to the well, right you, things. Well, th- you know, that is, the th- that is it. Because, yeah, you know, somebody will send in a record producer an engineer band whomever and they're you know one of the first things they'll want to know is like you know what what did you do you know yeah. what, what can i do better you know yeah, what, oh, what piece oh, of gear I've, can I've i asked, get? i've asked it to you a yeah. thousand times okay. you know and i i always try to you know gracefully say well it's hard to tell on one record which mm-hmm. is true yeah that's because true. You, you can't just because there's too many circumstances that you know will get you to that final result like i said yeah well you know what the singer was off mic you had to compress him that hard in mm-hmm. order to get it to stay consistent whatever it is but I guess if you have relationships with people that you respect, it doesn't even have to be obviously a mastering engineer. It could be a, you know a mixing engineer, it could be a tracking engineer, it could be an a, an older musician, something mm-hmm. you know, and just be open. You know, have a mind that's open to everything and close to nothing. You know, about how to get those sounds. You know, I mean that's, I think that's the best advice. And just you know, and and try you know try things on your own. You know, but again that reset is just so important. I don't know hmm. what people are using for that in their life. We were talking, yeah. you know, earlier when I was just saying hello, that like I used to go to live concerts, live mm-hmm. shows, and how that was inspirational, you know, and like that, that I used it in that the energy of that live show, be it Converge yeah. or be it, you know, I remember going to live, you know, piano, jazz, you know, um, piano co- uh, concerts, you know, and, and just recognizing the energy that was happening in the room that way and saying, all right, you know, now we're back in the, you know, confines of a mastering room. How do we make that energy happen? And you have to be aware of that, of what that energy felt like, you know, and I, I, Albini had this saying, and I'm going to probably bungle it a bit, but the sentiment was, if you're not going to see live bands three nights a week, I don't know how you get your bearings or what a good performance yeah, is yeah, when right. it's in the studio. Sure. And I think, you know, I take that with a grain of salt because, you know, Albini's capturing natural performances, whereas a lot of us are sitting there augmenting it with editing and punching. And, but. Yeah, well, you know, um, but if you could take that band that needs all the editing and punching and also train them how to be better performers, you'll probably wind up with a better record. I mean, I don't know if we mm-hmm. have the time or the money to do that. But, you know, you again, you're going to probably make a better record. 
it's hard. Well, it, if you're somebody who's starting out, or if you're a band, I think that that's an interesting thing is to take that from the musicians. A lot of people who listen to this are musicians, and I think that that's maybe one of the things that they don't focus on is that their producer should be doing a lot of work to train them to play better before they get in the studio. I think that's the one thing bands comment the most on that I've seen. So comment in what way? Explain that they'll be like, you know, hey, oh, you know, like they'll come in from mastering and, and I'll say, oh, you guys worked with so and so. Oh, yeah, I mean, he's a, oh, he's a slave driver. Oh, <laughs> you know, that's you know, you know, like, what do you mean he's a slave? Oh, man, he worked us to the bone, you know. No, in most cases, that's true. That's what you, that's what's required to get yeah. those performances. But it also, you know, it doesn't have to be torture. Yes. You know, if you... It's and you shouldn't torture... You if it's a producer, well, yeah. don't torture them just for the sake of... Yeah. But no, like, no. like, I think that there's one producer I could, like, think of it. It's like, you know, this is the guy who's probably like, I am I make my singer sing for five hours every time. I'm like, well, what if the fucking... Well, first what if the yeah, first thing's yeah. kind of really... Like, there's some people I work with, like, you know, one out of 50 that it's like, man, they kind of suck after five takes because then they're bored because they're so good. Well, you know, I mean, it all, that also gets into that you, as the producer, need to be ready to hear that performance mm -hmm. and know if it was right you know i think a lot of producer engineers that are you know working with a band a band will do a rundown a take you know and you could have you may be recording it or not but because you're still tweaking sounds and you're still mm -hmm. working on something you know the band will say oh man that was awesome and you'll be like yeah i'm still working on the snare drum sound though or something mm -hmm. and whereas it's like well wait a second if you were listening to what the band was doing so sometimes you know it's better to listen to what they're playing than to what you're tweaking yeah i mean in an over polished world these days i think that we do see a little less of that since the i i do, do so here's another thing i mean you you see so much of this come through i mean do you really see a lot of records that are still being made with not just saying they played it live and then replaced it all but like we are keeping the live tracks like i know like everybody's really uh really happy about how ryan adams did this on his taylor swift cover record that right. it's it's like it's all live performances right. basically right i think emotionally people want to do that and i think going into the studio wanting that is a good thing mm -hmm. uh whether they can perform it or not is up to the producer to determine but i think more and more people are recognizing that that's what they should be striving for i i'm seeing that you know, that, hmm. you know, people are, you know, it's like, okay, we don't need 124 tracks in Pro Tools, you know. They don't need that, but then they're happy when their producers beating them for, uh, beating them for a performance. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know. It, see, it, see, it seems a little irreconcilable for yeah, me. Yeah, it does. I mean, but that's also, you know, part of the problem that we're in right now is that, hmm. you know, you don't have to perform and that the producers can manufacture it for them, you know. So, with the trends in music, is auto-tune and, and uh, the loudness war getting better? I, I don't know, man. Um, I think so. I, I yeah, might be just it, that, like, is, I, I, yeah. don't, I don't listen to things that suck anymore. If, I, if something sucks, I just turn it off. I guess, I guess I'm just still amazed that some people, even though you try to educate them, and not even just, like, educate them in the common sense of it, but like, oh no, like, no, you don't realize that record you, you think is really loud is not that loud. Mm. That they just don't want to hear about it. That they still just want it louder. 
you know, and I'm, and I can try to explain it and give them examples and, but they just still want it loud, but it is better. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I think we've all come down, you know, I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say only maybe a DB and a half or two DB. Yeah, but that's a lot, but that's a lot at the levels compared to where everybody wanted them. Yeah. Um, and auto tune, I think is, well, either people are getting better at hiding auto tune and, or all of its, you know, I think it's both. Um, and or yeah, they're getting better at performing that task, uh, and or people are willing to let those mistakes go. Well, you know, what I think it's a, a a funny thing that happened is like I remember when I first would work with you when I would break it to the band that I wanted to record to the click track. I knew I was about to have potentially a fifteen to ninety minute argument right, yeah. with a lot of punk bands. Yeah. And now when I say we're using a click track, they're like, no, like this is I just told them that the world is round. Like they, they know, like what, what, what are you talking about? Grandpa? Like yeah. the world's flat. What yeah. do you think? And I, I think that there is a thing that we used to all joke about that musicians were getting lazy and they knew the auto tune would fix it. And you know, the whole pro tools joke of that was terrible. Come on in. Um, I think that people are starting to know that they got to kind of play. And I think that even bands, like they know that they got to deliver on a stage to be able to do something and, and like i want to say it's the democratization of music that we're not just getting pushed by labels with big budgets of whatever shitty taste they have that like when they you know a and r man just thought the singer was cute that they pushed it out there and they knew the marketing dollars would take them 20 percent of the way that they needed to right, get there right. that there's a little less of that and you really have to have some talent to get out there these days most of the time i'm not going to say this absolutely that we're seeing a better crop of musicians come out now in this flatter, more democratized music world. Yeah, and I think, I mean, with less pressure on um, the artist and the producer to make this finely crafted, you know, uh, mechanized pop song, I think we are willing to forgive more, you know. I mean, rather than saying, oh, well, it's got to be, you know, because, you know, there's label spent all this money, it's got to be in tune or whatever. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then they're finding out that they're liking it, you know. I think there's also a thing, too, that we experienced a period where, like, remember when everybody would just be so mad about, like, the gridded drums? And not to say that there's not, but I think that now it's like, if you're a big band and, like, you come out with that soulless record, it's just like, it's... It's the suicide. Yeah, yeah. and that's also your suicide as a producer, is if you're, like, really... You know, people could talk about the overproduction these days, but at least now it's not like that thing where it's like, I very rarely hear a record that gets anywhere near a budget or anywhere near a big band that like doesn't at least have like, it definitely has 10 to 20% more feel than like, let's say the days of MySpace core with the, like the Atreyu record where it sounded like they put everything on the yeah. computer grid or like that saliva record where they actually did do that. Right, right, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's also that I think the the musicians feel empowered now. They do understand a lot more in the control room. So they can speak to the producer and say, no, you know, give us another, come on, we can cut this together, we can edit that. Whereas I think there was, a, a matter of fact, you know, I mean, there was a band we were working with recently where, you know, we it, some of the songs did come from demos and some were from a more highly produced, you know, producer scenario. And yeah, you know, the, the demo ones were done in a studio with, you know, a, a younger engineer and he did, he put everything on the grid because he didn't know how to get that performance out mm -hmm. of the band 
Whereas the better producer, you know, yeah, got better sounds and all that kind of stuff, but also knew enough to leave some mistakes, leave some of the liveliness, you know. And now the band was educated because they saw firsthand, like, wow, yeah, you know, we didn't have to do everything on the grid. We didn't have to only use the trigger. We could have blended it in with mm. our snare, you know. Well, and I think also bands do want to feel like they did it themselves a little bit more. Yeah, well, and that that empowers them to take it out live too. Mm-hmm. You know, if if they know that they hit that note, or if they you know that they played it, you know, in one take, you know, whether it's you know beat detected or whatever, they knew that they did perform it live rather than it being piecemealed together. Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful feeling. So, with musicians, is there anything you observe where? they're making poor decisions in their production as compared to what the producers are doing that you think you can impart any wisdom on mistakes that they're making. Like on the, their with the musicians want things that aren't necessarily the best things for themselves that you see, or you see musicians making mistakes in the production of their record or, I mean, obviously there's simple things like, you know, Let's please not try the vinyl effect during the mastering in your intro of your song again, please. It's 2015. That was old in 1994. We were tired of doing it on the fir- on first yeah, wave yeah, emo records. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, I, you know, I don't, one of the things that just came to mind, I don't know if it's actually, if it's actually answering the question, but um, um I find that bands want to put more material on their records. This this is really funny. I was just listening to a discussion of this. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, you know, everybody's talking about, you know, it's a singles thing and we went through that whole thing. Oh, you only need to do three songs, you know, whatever it is. Um, I think that bands are feeling like they want to say more. You think it's that? So I think what it is, it's those fucking deluxe versions of records have gotten people used to listening to long records again. Okay, well, yeah. And, I, you know, I give the opposite advice in my book is I'm like, record the minimum amount of songs you can and then devote time and thought and put your budget towards recording good quality versions. Because one great recorded and executed, I mean, not a great recorded, one well-executed song will take you much farther than 17 mediocre ex- executed Absolutely. songs. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's the cost of distribution is the same, whether they're doing, yes. but, but like when we talked about before that, like I'm getting a lot of people to add in rough mixes, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's rare when people are, you know, let's say, you know, booking a mastering session to do eight songs and, oh, you know, we only got six. We're only putting out six. It's almost always that they're adding more. Hmm. So you have not seen like much as people talk about the the singleification and the EPification of things. Well, you're, you're... See, I think we're seeing a lot more EPs, yeah, and and people are doing the single because they think that's what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but often it's we're getting the single ahead of time, and then we're that you know they're pulling in the EP or the LP you know a month later or two months later. Or so you know somebody decided that they've got to you know get the single out right away for marketing or promotion purposes or something. But I'm finding more people adding more material than what they thought they were going to be putting on. Hmm. Again, that's, and it's not just a little bit. It's, it's kind of a lot, you know, maybe almost 30%, you know, like it's never less, you know, it's like, you know, like, 
you know, our office will fill out, you know, a session sheet and it'll say how many songs it is and rough running time. And it's always like, oh, wait, it's only seven. I got nine mixes here. What's going on? You know? Hmm. And then you make up an email. You, oh, yeah, we added two more songs to the last minute. Yeah, I guess I thing. see that here, too, yeah. too, with like the band. Uh, I'll, Mike will be producing a record and they call me the right and they'll book the mixing with me. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, Five song EP turned to date, huh? Right, and I don't think it's a pricing thing. <laughs> yeah, necessary. it's not like they're trying to squeeze it. Yeah, underneath I don't the think price. so either. Um, but I'm seeing that a lot. So I, whenever people say it's a singles thing, and they're you know, I mean, there are a lot of people that are doing EPs because I think it's just the immediacy. That's what they're doing. It takes. Well, a lot of time and to also, I I think it's good for bands to find their sound early on on EPs when they're younger yeah. and or you're just trying to get a following. It gets you to get it out if you don't have as much time um i think that that's no i mean and i agree one song done really well mm-hmm. but from all at levels production performance premeditating uh, writing yeah, absolutely yeah. one will take you a lot further than 17 that are done wrong absolutely but i think that there's people are stretching they're 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 wanting to do more songs you know it, it is it is interesting um so I've been on this big kick and I've been trying to write this article and it's just never coming out well. I'm, I'm curious to hear thoughts about it. I think one of the things musicians do that makes bad decisions for the record is they don't evaluate things on good things. I know you're a big proponent of that people are listening to music on terrible devices so they're not oh, getting yeah. to learn things. Yeah. You know, the study came out that I read was that uh, 80% of music estimated for people between uh, like 15 to 24, let's say is listened to on either an Apple laptop or the Apple headphones. Yeah. Um, so can, what can people do practically? Like, I, I think like there's a big thing is that like, I'm constantly making mixed decisions or production decisions based on what somebody can hear through two speakers that are smaller than an inch that can't reproduce the majority yeah. of what could be heard. Yeah, it is, it is amazing, um, you know, in that in the video world, you know, everybody wants, you know, more high-definition, bigger screens, you know. Oh, that's a good, good, good know, point, yeah. Um, more of the high technology, you know. Um, but yet in audio, we, we're always scraping for the littlest, you know, like your people will buy, you know, a 55-inch flat panel tv mm-hmm. you know but they'll be perfectly fine with the two inch speakers that, that are on the, that sides, are on the yeah. sides you know or something um yeah that's that is a problem i think um you know you just you just have to say i'm planning for this to be an amazing record six or nine months from now and it's going to get played on huge systems but you still have well, to think, recognize i'm it's thinking more about the decisions you make as you go is like should you really be making decisions about even your arrangement when you're losing so much depth to this? Man. Like, yeah, it's, no. it's, it's, it's like, it's really been bu- bugging me too of like, um, cause I, I am a firm believer that, yeah, obviously mixes should work well on those Apple headphones and they have to work well on that. But like, there's also a thing to me that like when we're saying, I don't think the keyboard's cutting through. Like, yeah, sure, but, you know, <laughs> there's something, too, that, yes, this is the lowest common denominator that we're ever going to deal with, the LCD sound system, if we will. Yeah. Um, 
you know, but there's also this thing of like, there's no room for nuance on that for evaluation, especially if it's a rough mix and you're making decisions about your song on something where your, you know, your quality hasn't been optimized. I think people are making really poor decisions because of it. Well, I mean, you know, reset, you know, <laughs> where, where, I mean, you know, where do you go, you know, frequency wise to do a reset? You know, um, if you don't have that to fall back upon, uh, it's it's hard to s help people understand that. You know, um, I used to have a lot of people, you probably remember, that you would just come to the mastering session, wouldn't say anything, just to hear it on the speakers. Yes, you that's know, just, true. Oh, my God, your speakers are so, you know. Well, I used to tell people to go to your studio and then just, you know, whenever you're about to down, don't listen to your record. Just put on one of your put on something else. Put on something that you really want to hear at a listen nice, to nice some way. Vinyl, yeah. Well, there used to be even times after I stopped working for you that, like, I'd come by and be like, I just want to hear this on the speakers real yeah. quick. Yeah, I mean, you know. And so for the listeners, you have a, what were we going to say, ten, fifteen thousand dollars speakers? Yeah, yeah. I mean, some, yeah, I mean. Twenty thousand dollar turntable yeah. that floats on air. Yeah, thirty. <laughs> yeah, something. But I mean, you know, but again, it gets back to that reset. It's like, what, you know, wh what do you strive for? And when you say, okay, let me hold on a second. I've been working a long time. Let me play some, let me reset. Where do I go? You know, or what do you hold inspirational? You know, I mean, you know, I mean, Amelia's got a turntable. My daughter's got a turntable. You know? Is it a Crossley? No. No. <laughs> no okay. It's, it's an Just making sure. turntable. Yeah. It's a pretty decent turntable, of course. But, you know, so you have to give them that, you know, early on, you know. And if they're not experiencing it, I don't, God, I feel sorry for them. I, I mean, I guess, you know, I would get back to that thing. Good, just go hang out with at a studio. Go offer to, you know, to be a gopher there, you know. And, and we were talking about, like, we're, you know, we don't want to let that happen because we don't want to be bothered by those people. Well, then you, then if maybe you don't care, I, I, it's hard. I don't know. I mean, you know. You're either going to give 100%, a true 100% to making something happen for your music, or you're not, you know. And, and I've seen people that really believe in it, you know, and we know many of them in common mm -hmm. that just will not settle for anything but their success, you know, and, and they get there. And, and you applaud them when they get there, you know. And then there are people that say they want it, but you see them, you know, but I, th I thought I had to, it was a little bit similar to something we were talking about before we started taping, is that, like, there's this discussion about that, like, Instagram and Facebook are making everybody have these expectations of what you're supposed to be doing with their lives. And, like, so, you know, you see all these people, they're going out and they're doing the things. They're going to Maui, then they're at the fanciest restaurant, and then they're drinking at the nicest place, uh, top of the hotel on top of the city and getting the nicest picture. But what's funny is, is now there's no pictures of like, I think of Ross Robinson who lived in his car while he was trying to make the, his early records so that he could succeed. So he could take as much of the budget as possible to not towards his living expenses to this. Right, right. And like, you know, people living at home or living, doing shitty things to do this. This is not what's put on Instagram anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So the sacrifice isn't, you know, the, the, the thing that gets put on there is when you're riding the yacht, not when the shitty sacrifices you made. And like, you know, I, I think of like the disgusting squalor I lived in and disgusting houses and living with horrible roommates to keep being able to afford better microphones I did for years. Right. 
Right. And no, I was not going to Instagram that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, again, you know, um, you know, talent, talent will find their way, I guess, you know, um, you know, if, if, if they're supported and I mm. guess we have to just try to support it. And I, I, you know, we were talking earlier too. I, I mean, I do when I find a band that I think is awesome, you know, we'll go out of our way to try to support them. In, you, in you have always way. been you have always been great with yeah, that you know we'll turn them on to labels we'll turn them on to A&R people you know management whatever it is you know you have you have to believe in them you know and if and or if a band you know shows up with mixes that aren't great or something or that are just you know you know out of whack and you just think the band is great well you, you know you make a call to somebody and say listen man this band is really great you know I think they could really use you know your touch you know do you have any time coming up? Can you, mm -hmm. what can you do? You know, I think we have to, we have to kind of blend together on that, you know, and, and, and help them. I, I've, well, I mean, I don't want to sound prophetic about it, but I mean, I, I think I've, I've tried to do that. No, I, I, I mean, for, for anybody who's listening, I can vouch that there's so many times you hear a band and you're like, you know what, you need to get with the, this producer or you get them to a label, you get them to hear it, you get them on some path where they can make their way to something better. Or yeah. you tell them that this record isn't working and that oh, yeah. there's yeah, stuff there's... i mean you've done that punny too of saying i can't master this yeah. you guys have better than this in you and yeah. it's just not working yeah yeah that's hard to do you know <laughs> to, to, to turn i'm gonna turn down money that i was guaranteed so you do something better yeah, but you know it you know it's uh f i guess fortunately it's not a lot of money that you turn down yeah. um and it always seems to come back that's you know? true but that, you know, that, er that earns trust. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and the bands are thankful for that and they'll tell other people. I mean, but that's ethics, too, you know, and, and it's hard. I mean, you know, when studio when guys are, you know, trying to stay alive, how can they turn down work? Because, you know, yeah. of these situations. No, I, I've definitely been there. Thanks for listening to Off the Record. If you enjoy the show, the best way to say thank you is to share this episode on social media, whether it's your Twitter, your Facebook, your Tumblr, your whatever, and just tell your friends. We just want the word to spread. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, it's at Off the Record FM. You can get show notes, explore old episodes at offtherecord.fm. If you think we should be talking about something, please let us know with the hashtag TellOTR on Twitter or ask us via Tumblr at offtherecord.fm. This episode was produced by Jesse Cannon and Ashley Aaron. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week.